Well, please have your Bible open in that first chapter of Philippians. And as we consider this next little section of the opening chapter, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and learn from him that life in Christ looks like this. Take a look at the Apostle Paul in his prison chains. Life in Christ looks like this. The Apostle teaches us how as Christians we should and may respond when our circumstances seem to be going against us. An integral part of our Christian testimony is the way in which we deal with things like suffering and disappointment and uncertainty because the fact that we're Christians doesn't shelter us from those kinds of experiences. In verses 12 to 14, Paul is suffering. He's a prisoner on remand. He's, he would be under house arrest for two years. It's possible that he could be sentenced to death. His crime? Preaching Christ. Preaching the gospel. He's suffering. In verses 15 to 18, he knows what it is to be disappointed. He's disappointed as many go out and preach out of wrong and false motives. There are men who've set themselves up as rivals to Paul. Men who want the kind of fame and reputation that Paul has received. And that is their motive in preaching. And he knows what it is to be disappointed by such things. Our natural response when things don't go the way we would like them to can be many and varied. We might just feel sorry for ourselves. We might get angry. We feel frustrated. Perhaps we even have a tendency towards becoming depressed. But because Paul is a Christian, and it is because he is a Christian, he has an altogether different kind of outlook. And he's able to respond in an altogether new way. The old Paul raged against Christians and the church. That rage has gone because he's in Christ. He still has that underlying zeal, but he's not the raging man he used to be. Paul no longer worries very much at all about his own personal agenda. Do you? Does your own personal agenda cause you no end of worry? Does it cause you no end of hassle? Does it cause you no end of anxiety? Is your own personal agenda important to you in your life? That you get your way? That those plans you're making all work out? Are you the kind of person who's actually best avoided for 24 hours when things go against you because you become rather prickly and difficult to deal with Paul is showing us through the words of this letter that he wrote that his priorities are the honour of Christ the cause of the gospel and the good of God's people 
those things have become his personal agenda. The honor of Christ, the cause of the gospel, and the good of God's people. They have become his priority in living. And when he can see that his sufferings and his disappointments don't take anything away from the honor of Christ, he can put up with them. When he can see that his sufferings and disappointments have furthered the gospel, when he can see that his sufferings and disappointments have brought good to fellow believers, he's full of rejoicing. He rejoices in those things that normally would cause people no end of problem. And now as this letter unfolds from verse 19, he reflects upon the great uncertainty of what lies before him. Now there are many things that make life uncertain, aren't there? The uncertainty of life has been brought home with immense force this last week, hasn't it? So many things can be uncertain. Health, good family relationships, employment, finance, exam results, election results. And as we've had dreadful reminders recently, life itself is uncertain. We still don't know the number of people who went to bed that night in that tower block, never to wake. As a prisoner, Paul doesn't know what the outcome of his trial will be, nor does he know what the sentence will be if he's found guilty. It could be the death penalty. The only, uh, the only slight appointment to the death penalty for him as a Roman citizen is that as a Roman citizen he would be spared crucifixion. He would just have his head chopped off. As uncertainties go, that's right up there. But what does Paul show us? First thing he shows us is the effectiveness of prayer and the effectiveness of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Verse 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through. There are certain agencies that God is going to use in Paul's life. There are certain things that God will use. There are two. The first is prayer. And he's writing to the Philippians. He says to them, your prayer, your prayer for me is going to be effective. And I have confidence in the fact that you are praying for me. And secondly, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The effectiveness of prayer and the Spirit of Christ bolster Paul. They hold him up. They fill him with confidence and assurance and hope. He says they'll turn out for my salvation or for my deliverance in verse 19 the Greek word can be translated salvation or deliverance 
Um, he's not, if you've got a Bible that uses the word salvation, he's not talking about his spiritual salvation as he has in Christ. He's talking about his literal deliverance out of his prison cell. The reason for that we'll see later uh, in the final point. But here is such an important lesson about what to do when faced with uncertainty. Well, you certainly need to pray, but if you can, get the Lord's people to pray. Because it makes a difference. Maybe you're a Christian who's not so convinced about the place of prayer. And specifically about the place of prayer in the church. Look at verse 19 and read it carefully. Read it slowly and absorb what Paul is saying. I know, says Paul, that your prayer as the Philippian church is going to be effective. It's going to, it's going to keep me. Prayer achieves things. Prayer gets things done. God hears and answers prayer. One of the chief reasons why you need to be at the church prayer meeting is because of verse 19 of Philippians 1. Because it does stuff. It gets God's work done. Other believers need you to pray for them. And when the church comes together in prayer, that's one of the key things that we pray for. Other believers. It's a vital part of the church. And perhaps there are some who struggle to get out to the church prayer meeting. Perhaps some of those reasons are all tied up with you. But the thing is, there are other Christians who need you to be there to pray. And you need the prayers of the Lord's people. You need the prayers of the church. If Paul needed it, I can be absolutely certain I do. And I know you do too. Prayer is effective. And the prayer of the church is effective. Paul knows it. He teaches it. He relies upon it. Yes, you can and you should pray on your own. But the prayers of the gathered church play a very significant role in the life of the New Testament church. And they do in our church too. Other believers need you to pray for them with us. Please come and join us when the church is praying. Paul is always asking churches to pray for him. Why? Because he knows that prayer makes a difference. And side by side with that, he has every confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will supply the grace and the courage and the wisdom that he needs. And of course, the Holy Spirit has all kinds of different names in the Bible. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And here, wonderfully, he's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Our Saviour himself within us through the Holy Spirit. Our Saviour himself dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit. Our Saviour himself making his home within us through his Holy Spirit. 
Now, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, towards the end of the letter to the Ephesians, we have that little passage which is known now and is titled in many Bibles, The Whole Armour of God. And Paul tells these Christians, you need, make sure you've got these things on. Of course, they're not physical things. He's talking about spiritual truths and realities which apply to every Christian believer. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Put them on, wear them. Now surely those six things are going to do the trick. Those six things will keep the Christian victorious. But wait a minute. Six things. Only six things? The whole armour of God. Six things? Now why should I be questioning six things? Because in the Bible, the number for completeness and fullness is seven. The whole armour of God, we might expect reasonably to consist of seven things. Ah, next verse, number seven, praying always, praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. That's what he's saying in verse 19 of Philippians 1. Paul is being upheld. Paul is being sustained. Paul is being strengthened. Paul is being made bold. Paul is being given confidence. How? By the prayers of a local church, just like this local church, and by the Spirit of God, who is with him and within him. The effectiveness of prayer and the Spirit of Christ. They were Paul's, and they are yours as a Christian believer. The second thing that we see in Paul is the honor of Christ, whether in life or in death. And we have this very famous verse, don't we, here? Verse 21. But let's remind ourselves of verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the only, that's the only thing that really concerns him. Whether I live, whether I die, here is the most important thing, that Christ is magnified in me and through me for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain and of course in, that, in his death Christ is glorified because in his death the work that Christ has done for him in his, in his death and resurrection will be shown to be true 
Here's an important question that every Christian should ask whenever a decision is to be made. Whenever a choice comes across your path. Will this magnify Christ? Will this magnify Christ? Paul found that he was at peace as long as he could answer yes to that question. Let's be honest, most of us find that it's the effect that something is going to have on me that causes us the most problems and worry. I don't want that to happen because of the effect it's going to have on me. I don't want to be in that situation because of the effect it's going to have on me. It's the effect that something is going to have on me, either immediately or in the future, that drives many of my choices or decisions. And because that way of thinking will often lead us to make poor decisions and make poor choices, that way of thinking is not a way to lasting peace. But Paul has found a way to having peace because he asks the question not what effect is this going to have on me will this magnify Christ and as long as he can say yes he finds he's really at peace it seems that was the main issue which has driven Tim Farron to resign as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party this week now some of you perhaps like me have been a bit disappointed at some of the things that Tim Farron said in previous weeks as a man who has stood up as a Christian MP. But judging by some of the things that he said in the middle of this last week, maybe none of us have been more disappointed than Tim himself in some of the things that he said. It would seem that he has found himself asking this vital question. Am I magnifying Christ by the way I'm doing this job? Can I magnify Christ if I continue to do this job? It seems he kept finding the answer was no. And so the job had to go so that he could magnify Christ. He seems to have tuned in to what Paul has discovered whether I live or die in many ways it's irrelevant as long as I magnify Christ for me to live is Christ now we can take those six words and we could put them in a different order we could find ourselves saying Christ is for me to live Christ is for me to live now of course there's a very real sense in which that is true Christ is life Christ is the source and giver of life in him is life he who has the son has life so there's a very real sense in which Christ is for me to live. Christ came into the world so that I might live 
and have life in him. Christ is for me to live. That's true. But think about this phrase, Christ is for me to live. If that's all we ever think, if that's the only order we ever put those words in, can you see the danger that is lurking there? Christ is for me to live. Christ exists only to enhance my life. Christ is nothing more than a life improver and a life enhancer. Christ exists to improve my lot in life, to make my life better according to my own estimation and judgment. Christ is for me to live. And let's face it, that's what most people in this world are looking for. So if that is how Christ is presented, that Christ is simply someone who you can turn to like a magic genie in a bottle so that your life becomes better, at what point does that person ever say, for me to live is Christ. You see, if you go down the road that only ever says Christ is for me to live, then Christ becomes nothing more than your servant. And you're not serving him. But the order in which Paul puts these words are so important, aren't they? For me to live is Christ. I live for Christ. I live by Christ. I live to magnify Christ in any and every possible way. He is my everything. You see, it's not that without him I have less of a life. It's without him I have no life at all. And that's the difference. That's the vital difference. If someone could come to you as a Christian and prove that Christ never existed, would your, would your life just become a bit less than it is now? Or would you be thinking, without Christ, I have no life. I've lost everything if I lose Christ. You see, Paul's testimony is, Christ is my very life. And I live for him. And if I did not have him, I would have nothing. For me to live is Christ. What a lesson to learn. But Paul, thirdly, also has certain hope in death. Certain hope in death. He goes on at verse 22. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul's certain hope in death. Do you have this hope? 
do you have this certain hope that when you die you're going on to something far better than you've left behind do people see in you someone who is looking forward so much more to what lies ahead or do they see in you someone who is putting so much into the things of this world it's as if that's everything you're depending on now you may think that perhaps well Paul's only speaking like this because he's in prison heaven compared to prison well of course that's better he's in a dark and a difficult place if I was where he was I might think that way well I think that's to completely misunderstand Paul because we have to remember if you uh, went into that house where Paul was under arrest if you were to lift up his shirt and look at his back it wouldn't be a pretty sight because all those lashings and beatings that he's taken before have never stopped him preaching the gospel this is how Paul has lived his whole life as an apostle this isn't just wishful thinking from a man in a prison cell thinking well heaven's got to be better than this this is how he lived his whole life Paul is so convinced of what lies beyond the grave that he cannot wait to get there he knows that at the moment of his death that which he moves on to is so vastly superior to what he has now he cannot wait to get there is that in you as a Christian or you're so taken up with this world you never give what is to come a moment's thought the word depart in verse 23 was most commonly used in two ways either of an army moving camp moving on to somewhere else or of a ship casting off and departing from one port to arrive at another it has the idea of a definite relocation moving on from here to there it's not just the fact that I'm leaving it's the fact that I know where I'm going setting off for a new destination oh to be present with the Lord says Paul because I know that's where I'll be no more suffering no more disappointments no more uncertainty no more sin no more shame no more stumbling or faltering no more letting the Lord down no more sadness never again a regret never a doubt a fear never need to shed a tear anymore instead of being in a place where we lose loved ones you'll be in a place where they're continually being added and never lost again how about that no more elections the king of kings rules there I'm hard-pressed, says Paul. I so long to be with Christ. Do you? But finally, something more needful than what he desires. He desires to be with Christ, but there's something more needful than that. And that's in the final few verses. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you and he wants to remain with them because he knows that they need the ministry that he can bring them the more I get to know the Apostle Paul 
the more ashamed of myself I become. For Paul, running a close second behind the magnification of Christ is the spiritual welfare and progress of the church. And it's the depth of Paul's concern. And it's the depth of his conviction that often puts me to shame. He longs to be with Christ, but he can see that their spiritual needs are far greater than his own desires. And so he knows that his work is not yet done. His ministry is to continue. And it's for no personal gain of any kind. Look for your progress and joy of faith. It's needful that I must remain. We see that progressing in the faith is normative for Christians. What progress have you made so far this year? How has your joy as a Christian increased? What spiritual lessons are you learning? How are you getting to know Christ better? There's a great spiritual lesson here for all Christians in the Apostle, isn't there? Your concern for fellow believers should always far outweigh your own desires. It's that simple old expression, isn't it? To have real joy is to put Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And here it is, exemplified and lived out in the Apostle Paul. When I was a teenager, it wasn't the likes of Townend and Getty who were the up-and-coming hymn writers of the day. It was a man called Graham Kendrick. And sometimes some of the hymns he wrote got some quite fierce criticism. Uh, occasionally, perhaps, some criticism may have been deserved. But actually, a lot of his hymns are really very good. He wrote this. So let us learn how to serve. And in our lives enthrone him. That's the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we're serving. It's interesting, he doesn't say each other's needs to meet. He says each other's needs to prefer. It's that word prefer that's the real killer in that line, isn't it? I can cope with the idea that I have a duty to try and meet your needs. But to tell me that I have to prefer your needs over my own, uh, that, that throws a slightly different light on the subject, doesn't it? That places a slightly different emphasis. But we see this is Paul's life. To prefer the needs of others to any of his own personal plans or projects or goals or ambitions. And you might find yourself balking at the idea. But here is a man in prison, facing a possible death sentence. And in him, there's no bitterness, no recriminations, no self-pity, no anger, no distress, no depression. Because God, Paul's goal and aim in life has been totally transformed by the grace and power of his God and Saviour. Yes, I'm in chains, Paul can say. Yes, I'm suffering, Paul can say. Yes, I've been disappointed, 
Yes, things are very uncertain, but it's magnifying Christ. It's furthering the gospel. It's building up the saints of God. Good. All is well in my soul. I'm full of joy. I'm at peace. And I'm looking forward to heaven. That is what life in Christ looks like.